good morning. Welcome back to our series in Genesis, what we've been calling Where It All Began. We've been trekking our way through Genesis chapter by chapter, looking at the faithfulness of God as he began his plan to reconcile not only us, but really all of creation back to himself. Now, we've reached a turning point in the book as the focus will shift after today's message from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Israel, or Jacob's offspring. We've been focused on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from chapters 12 to 37. That's half of the book of Genesis has been sent on these three individuals and God's interaction in their lives, which shows you how important they are and the reason when we went all the way back to Genesis to look at where it all began. God is interested in relationships and dealing with us in a very personal way. God has chosen, as we've seen, to display his faithfulness through various individuals and their families, from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abram, Abraham who, Abram who later became Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob who later becomes Israel. And we'll see as we finish up Genesis, we'll shift our focus to Joseph, Israel's, one of Israel's sons. Way back in Genesis, chapter 12 to 15, God chose to bless Abram and to be his God simply because Abram believed. Literally took him at his word and obeyed without question. When God said, Abram, I want you to move, Abram said, where to and when do you want me to go and how far? No questions asked. And God is still looking for that same trust and faith from us today so that he can bless us. I used to tell my children when they were little, when I say jump, you say how high. Right, it didn't work, trust me. They would say, why? They would just, why give me the whiny? Why do I need to do that? Explain it to me. Never worked. Hebrews 11, 8 to 12 says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. That's an important thing to note, that he lived in tents. Whenever they strayed from tents and altars, you knew that trouble was coming. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's the same place that God is calling us to, to where he is, to where he dwells, to be in his presence. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, I love the way it puts that. I'm sure Abram was like, what do you mean as good as dead? And he as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. That line of blessing and God's faithfulness first given to Abraham was also extended to Isaac and then on to Jacob just as God had promised. Mind you, though, it was not without difficulty and trouble. Not from God's side, but from ours. You see, Abraham had a bad habit of telling half-truths, which we all know are whole lies, aren't they? But God took care of him anyway. 
always being faithful to his promise, regardless of how much Abraham screwed up, and he does the same for us. He, Abraham, passed those lying traits on to his son Isaac. Parents, that's why it's important to know that our children become what we are, not what we say. And we need to practice what we tell them they should be doing. Isaac repeated the same crime of lying about his wife to protect his own skin. He lied to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Who, who, who this woman? Uh, she's, my, she's my sister. She's, she's not my wife. Now that lie about his wife being his sister was technically true for Abraham. Sarah was his half-sister from a different mother, but not true for Isaac. For Isaac, this was a whole lie. Rebekah was his first cousin, once removed by a generation. Once removed by a, a what? Once rem- how, how do you figure that? It didn't make any sense to me either, trust me. These whole how things are related and who's related to who and who's a cousin and the second cousin, I can't follow any of that stuff. So let me show you graphically, in a graphic form, so you can get a sense of how just messed up these family dynamics are. So here we go. It begins with Terah. Terah had four children, Haran, Nahor, Sarai, and Abraham. Now, Abraham marries his half-sister. Ooh, (laughs) I don't know how y'all feel about that, but to me it's like, ooh, I don't think I want to marry my sister. I love my sisters, but I don't want to marry either one of them. They had Isaac, also had Ishmael, because Sarah couldn't have children, there was a promise. They forced that. Sarah gave Abraham his, uh, her handmaid, Hagar, and he had Ishmael, who later becomes the father of 12 tribes as well. They go on to become all of the Arab nations. Now, Haran, he had Lot and Milcah. Milcah marries her uncle, Nahor. Double oo. I don't know how y'all feel, but that just freaks me out. That creeps me out. Now, they had, some, they had a child named Bethuel. Now, Bethuel had Laban and Rebekah. Rebekah marries Isaac. It's all in the family here. They have Jacob and Esau. Jacob then marries Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel, and produces, I mean, round and round. This is crazy dynamics. No wonder this family was so screwed up. Now, God puts an end to all of this interfamily stuff in the book of Leviticus later on. Maybe we'll get to that book in some future date. But here's the downward progression of lies and its effect on the family line. Abraham made up his mind to lie as a strategy beforehand to protect himself. And he does this twice. Lies about his wife being his sister. Isaac lies out of fear to protect his own skin. And we see that by the time we get to Jacob, which, by the way, his name means surplanter, someone who seizes or circumvents or usurps, that he is living up to his namesake, and it describes who he is as a person. He is the conniver. He's the deal-maker, only trusting in his own ability to wheel and deal. But a true encounter with God can change you, can't it? Anyone been changed by a true encounter with God? Can I get an amen to that? Amen to that. I know, I know my brother Theron has. It's why it's so important to note when God changes someone's name in the Scripture. It's a big deal. When God changes a person's name and he gives them a new name, it is usually to establish a new identity because they have been touched by God. 
God changed Abram's name to uh, meaning high father to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude, an indication of who he was to become. At the same time, God changed Abraham's wife's name from Sarai, meaning my princess, to Sarah, meaning mother of nations, an indication of who she was to become. This name change took place when God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And God also reaffirmed that promise to give Abraham a son specifically through Sarah and told him to name his son Isaac, meaning laughter. Now, you may remember that Sarah laughed when she heard that she was going to have children. I mean, those parts start working a long time ago. And Sarah like, that'll be a miracle. And indeed it was. It was a miracle. And she laughed. And so God named their son Isaac. Abraham, he had another son, though, Ishmael, through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. God promised, though, to bless the nations through Abraham, and that was to be fulfilled through Isaac's line, from whom Jesus descends. And Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of that promise that was given to Abraham to bless all nations. Isaac was the father of Jacob, who became Israel. His 12 sons form the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews. Now, the physical descendants of Abraham and Sarah formed many nations. And in the spiritual sense, their descendants are even more numerous. Paul says in Galatians, says that all who belong to Jesus Christ, Jew, Gentile, male, female, are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What promise? The one made to Abraham to bless all nations through him. That blessing flows down to you and to me. God changed Jacob's name, which means surplanter to Israel, meaning having power with God. All of this happened after Jacob had taken Esau's birthright, had stolen Esau's blessing, had fled from his brother to Uncle Laban, had married Leah and Rachel, fled from Uncle Laban back home, and then wrestled with God as he prepared to meet Esau. Jacob had tricked his brother had been tricked by his uncle, tricks his uncle, and now he is going through his brother's backyard to escape his angry uncle. Jacob heard that Esau got wind of this, him cutting through the backyard, and was now coming out to meet him. And Jacob feared for his life because the last time that he had met his brother, his brother was trying to kill him. That night, Jacob wrestles with a man who later Jacob identifies as God and is considered a, a theophany or perhaps even a pre-incarnate Christ. Jacob hold, held on to that man until he got a blessing from him. It was maybe a, Jacob's third encounter with God, depending on how you count. It was at this point that God changed his name. No longer would he be Jacob, be that surplanter and trickster. Rather, he would be identified as having struggled with God and with humans and overcome. Folks, this is the original days of our lives. Now, I'm not into soap operas, but in college, we watched General Hospital every day. We ran out to see what was happening with Luke and Laura. Or if you prefer, as the world turns, if you want something more modern, it's the Jersey Shore. Well, if your head is spinning trying to keep up, don't let anyone tell you that the Bible isn't interesting, that it's a boring book. It's not. But we have one more chapter to his life to review. So let's pause now for station identification, if you will. Say hi to those watching online, and let's open in prayer. But before we do, let me remind you that if you want to catch up on a message, any message, you can always do so 
by going to ffcsermons.org where you can listen online or download or set up a podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch a previously recorded message on YouTube or on Facebook. Let's pray and see what God has for us today. Father, we come into your presence and we thank you that you are faithful to your promise, that you do not change, that you cannot lie, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, regardless of how many times we screw up, you stand there with open arms calling us home and giving us a home and a way forward. We thank you for your presence here today. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie Back to the Future, Marty McFly, the character played by Michael J. Fox, he had to visit, he went to visit his, his mad scientist friend, Doc Emmett, or Doc Brown as he was called, who revealed to him that he had built a car powered by plutonium that could be a time machine when that car hit 88 miles an hour. Unfortunately, Marty also had to witness the death of his friend at the hands of the Libyan terrorist, angry at Doc for seizing the plutonium that was theirs for his car. Fleeing the terrorist in Doc's car, Marty unwittingly speeds to 88 miles an hour and is transported back in time. To save Doc was not Marty's only concern in the past. His own future existence was jeopardized when his mother had a crush on him instead of his dad. Now, just when his mother finally fell in love with the right person, Marty's dad, Marty, left in the same car, this time powered by a lightning bolt, but uh, before, not before leaving Doc a note telling him what was going to happen. But the idealistic Doc ripped up the note saying that he did not want to interfere with history. On his return to 1985, Marty watched hopelessly as uh, the same terrorist shot Doc dead again. But to Marty's relief, Doc was wearing a bulletproof vest, confessing sheepishly that he had read the letter after taping it back together. Jacob had some unfinished business to do, and he had to revisit the past to realize the future. He also had to go back to the future, if you will. It's been 30 years since Jacob vowed to return to Bethel, where God had revealed himself to him during his flight from his brother Esau to, to, to uh, Padam Aran. Far worse, or for, yeah, it's been 10 years since Jacob had left Laban on his journey back home to that home, that land of promise. Jacob's vow at the beginning of his saga came during the very first night that he was fleeing from his brother Esau to Uncle Laban, his mother's brother. It was here that Jacob has his very famous dream back in Genesis 28, where God promised, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. That's God's promise. It's also where we see Jacob make sort of a promise of his own, where Jacob begins to make a deal with God, and he's like, you know, hey, God, you know, if you protect me, like if you be with me, you know, then when I return, hey, you can be my God. And as a matter of fact, I think I'll throw in a tithe of 10%. He would have been an excellent used car salesman. We're going to throw in that undercoating for free, no charge. Notice the emphasis on I and who's doing all this work. It's Jacob. 
You ever tried to make a deal with God? You know, God, if you just get me through this, if you just do this for me, then I'll do this. I'll, do, I'll promise I'll never do that again. But God doesn't work in deals because we can't keep our end. We just can't do it. And God wasn't looking for a deal with Jacob. God was calling Jacob to greatness through a relationship with him where God would be the one who was in charge. Over and over in his life, he keeps reminding Jacob that he is calling him home to be where he is, where God is dwelling. But God never forced him to act. In fact, he lets him get pretty far away and suffer the consequences of his poor choices before stepping back in to reach out a hand and remind Jacob, Jacob, I'm still here. I'm still calling you home. I'm still faithful to my promise. I like to think my dad worked the same way. My dad would give you just enough rope that you could almost hang yourself before he would yank on that rope and pull you back if you were too dumb to figure it out that you were going down the wrong road. Mind you, he let you stub your toe before going too far. He'd say, son, that's far enough. You didn't think that one all the way through. I remember asking my dad if I could go on a trip to Europe between the 11th and 12th grade with some other students to visit all of the, the classical sites that we had talked about in history class, how educational it would be. Of course, I might have forgot to mention that the only two other students going were the cutest and shortest girls in my class, both five feet. He yanked that rope back real fast, uh, son. That's a solid no, as he looked at me like I was a solid idiot. Can you imagine one hot young man trekking across Europe with two beautiful teenage girls from youth hostel to youth hostel? Now, there was supposed to be a chaperone, but they never showed up. So these two young girls, 17 years old and barely five feet, went all over Europe by themselves for an entire summer. It's a miracle they survived. And a good thing, too, I married one of those cute girls, and we've been trekking through life for over 38 years, and she's still as cute as ever. Amen to that. All right. She's giving me the evil eye. All right, back to our story. So far, God's relationship with Jacob has been terribly one-sided. Jacob was the grabber and, and never the giver, the beneficiary and, and never the blessing, the receiver and never the reverse. For Jacob to become Israel, he had to confront his past, trace his path, and do his part. God was supposed to go, or Jacob was supposed to go all the way back to Bethel, but he stops short in Shechem. Bad idea. How do we know it's a bad idea? Because he bought a piece of land. He decided to stop and settle. And in so doing, he settled for far less than what God had in mind for him. Genesis 33 says, After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he brought from the sons of Haman, Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and he called it El Eloha, Israel. Sounds like he's in Hawaii to me, El Eloha. Expect to see some fancy Hawaiian girls out dancing here. El Eloha, Israel. God of the God of Israel is what that means, or, or mighty is the God of Israel. You ever settle, you think, for less than what God wants for you? You ever have that feeling? I think what we see out 
play out in Jacob's life is sometimes a commentary on the church today. He still has a tent. He still has an altar. He even has a good-sounding name for that altar, God, the God of Israel. But is it really real in his life? Or is he just going through the motions? Is it a good front? Is it all a, a facade? Is it his best Sunday face that he puts on and he's different the rest of the week? Is it all smoke and mirrors? And why is a tent important? Well, and an altar. An altar in the Old Testament, scriptures speaks of dedication, a remembrance of what God has done for us and what God has committed to do for us as we follow his leading. Have we given God our lives? Here's a prayer that we can pray in the morning. Lord Jesus, this bed is the altar, my body is the sacrifice. I offer it afresh to you in total dedication. Now, a tent, it speaks of detachment from this world and our willingness to follow whenever and wherever God leads us. As Christians, we are pilgrims passing through this world. And in order to pass through, we must remain detached from this world and all that it holds dear. Our hearts belong to another kingdom. Peter says, dear brothers, you are only visitors here since your real home is in heaven. I beg you to keep away from the evil pleasures of this world. They are not for you, for they fight against your very souls. Far too often we have a form of godliness. We look good on the outside, but we deny the real power thereof. What Jacob does sounds good, and it looks good on the surface. But Jacob, he was trying to live in two worlds, serve two masters, walk two roads. I found this old West African proverb. And this is what it says. The man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. <laughs> that makes me laugh. I like that proverb. The man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. That's the way it is with those who try to live for the Lord and the pleasures of this world at the same time. They are trying to walk two roads, which can only lead to disaster in the end and split pants. This is what happened to Jacob. God had called him back to Bethel. But he chose to settle just 30 miles away in Shechem at the crossroad of trade where he could get rich. The grazing land there was far better for his flocks. Sure, he built an altar there. But his attempt to live for the world and for the Lord at the same time tore his family apart. Jacob's daughter was violated by a man who fell in love with her. Jacob was ready to intermarry with the Shechemites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites. His sons became murderers and thieves, and, and he was disgraced. Here's the thing I found. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you are willing to pay. Some of us have been there, haven't we? We've walked away from God only to find it costing us more than we ever thought that it would. Even so, God in his grace wants us back for himself. Like Jacob, he is calling us back to Bethel, where he dwells. He calls us to uh, come home to him, and he provides a way back. You say, Jim, but man, I've messed up. You don't know how far away I've got. How can I find my way back to joy in his presence again? Well, let's take a look at Genesis 35, where Jacob found a way home and a way forward with God. Genesis 35, 1. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. 
Now, even though Jacob had messed up so badly for 30 years, God was not done with him yet. God, in his grace, calls him back to this place where they first met face to face. And Jacob finally listens to God. Finally, he's listening. Evelyn, my then three-year-old granddaughter, wanted to come down to our basement with me. And I agreed that she could, so long as when we got down there, she stayed on the step. She agreed, but immediately came off the steps and started exploring our 1870s basement. Not a safe place for a three-year-old. I said, Evelyn, Evelyn, on the steps, dear. To which she replied, as she stood staunchly on the floor, I hear you. I said, Evelyn, I know you hear me, but you're not listening to me, are you? You need to be on the steps, honey. Jacob had heard God before, but he wasn't listening. Now he is finally listening. And as one who heard God's voice, who uh, had been given a new name by God, he finally starts to take action to follow God's voice. Verses 2 and 3, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Now I want you to notice the difference in the tone of that response from the one that he gave in chapter 28 when he first met God. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I had set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that I have, I will give a tenth. One was God, uh, Jacob wheeling and dealing, and then this latter one, the one where in the chapter we are now, was immediate action, not a lot of talk. He just got up and did what God asked him to do. Insofar as the scriptures report, God had been silent for nearly 10 years, ever since he had commanded Jacob to leave Padanaram and to return to Bethel. The question must be asked, why did God wait so long to instruct Jacob to get on with the matter and to get back all the way to Bethel? He had clearly commanded him to do early, earlier. To me, I think the answer is quite simple. Until now, Jacob wasn't listening. He was living in his own hard-headed self. Now, finally, Jacob makes plans to go back to Bethel to meet with God. But first, he decides to get rid of all of the idols that have piled up in his life. So they gave Jacob all of their foreign gods that they had and the rings in their ears, and, and Jacob buried them under the oak in Shechem. You might recall that his wife Rachel stole her father's household idols, and she hid them under her saddle, and then she claimed that she was having her period and she couldn't move, and therefore they couldn't check I mean, a lion and conniving all the way. And evidently, the rings in their ears weren't just jewelry. This isn't a command to not wear jewelry. These were magic charms that they used to protect themselves. They had stopped trusting in God and began trusting in magic charms and foreign gods and other things. And, and these weren't cheap either. These were like a shekel's weight in gold each. By today's standards, that'd be about $2,000 in earring. That's some expensive, some expensive earrings. So Jacob buried all of those idols and charms, declaring that they were going to trust God and God alone. And immediately he sees the benefits of trusting God. Then they set out, verse 5, and the terror of God fell on all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. The Lord protected them like no other God. 
Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Notice the change of the name of the place. Before, when God met Jacob in his dream, he said, surely this is Bethel, God's house. That's Bethel. That's what he called the place. But now he calls it El Bethel, God, the God of the house, uh, the God of the house of God. Jacob recognizes that it is not only God's house, it is God that he had met. Jacob doesn't want, to, or God doesn't want you to be in his house. He wants his house, if you will, to be in you, for you to be in his home, to be part of his family, and to know him, the God of the house of God. Jacob wanted to stay in, in Shechem because he thought it would be better than going to Bethel. It would be worse for him if he went to Bethel, worse for his flocks, worse for his family, but God had so much more for him in his presence. See, there's a lie going around in the church of today, and the lie goes a little something like this. God accepts you the way you are. God accepts you the way you are. That's not actually true. If God accepts you the way you are, then there was no reason for Jesus to have died. Jesus died for nothing. The reality is, is that God loves you the way you are. Not as you should be, not as you could be, not as you must be. God loves you as you are, all of your success, all of your ugliness, all of your shame, all of your failure, everything you hide. God loves you as you are, but, and it's a big but, he loves you enough not to leave you the way he found you, not to leave you the way he found you. He wants to change you. Every command of Scripture, every single command, the easy ones, the hard ones, the difficult ones, the confusing ones, every single command of Scripture is given by God. In this book, is given by God to increase joy in our lives. God is not in the business of limiting our funds. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm talking about abundant life. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So like Jacob, you are faced with a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua 24, 14 to 15. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. The, the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. When we choose to follow God, He faithfully provides a way home and a way forward for us. Jacob heard God calling him, come back to me. Get rid of all of those idols that are in your life, that are holding you back, and return to the place where you first met me. And that's what we must do if we want to find our way back into the joy of the Lord. That's what we must do if we want to find our way back into the joy of his presence. We need to get rid of what we know doesn't work. It's like watching that reality show, Hoarders. Anybody watch that show? It's a weird show. That show makes me want to clean after I'm done watching that show. Hoarders, they're holding on to so much stuff, 
all this stuff that brought him pain. When are we going to realize that hanging on to those things is like rummaging around the garbage piles of life and avoiding the true source of satisfaction? Paul Copen in his book, Is God a Moral Monster?, says such behavior reminds him of a comic strip he once saw. It was a dog drinking out of the toilet bowl. Now, anyone who has a dog knows that you've got to keep the lid down because they'll drink out of anything. They don't really care. Water is dripping from Fido's uh, snout, and he's looking up, and he says, it doesn't get any better than this, does it? Drinking out of the toilet bowl. Instead of enjoying fresh spring water, we look for stagnant, crummy substitutes that inevitably fail us. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. John 7, 38. Return to God. Let him remind you of his commitment to you. That's what God did with Jacob. Genesis 35, 9 and 10. After Jacob returned from Padan Ram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God reminds Jacob of his new name, his new identity. And God reminds Jacob of the nation he will become. Now, you'll remember, he's already renamed him once. Why does he have to do it again? Why does he have to do it again? Well, up until now, Jacob had still been living as Jacob. He hadn't made the switch. He hadn't identified. He hadn't absorbed that new identity that God had given him. He went right back to drinking out of the toilet rather than leaning and trusting on God to move forward. Genesis 35, 11 to 15, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I give to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at that place where God had talked to him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had called him Bethel. Jacob came back to the house of God where God reminded him of his new name and of the nation that he would become. This was nothing new to Jacob. God had told him these things before, but he had forgotten them in his pursuit of worldly wealth. Now, after he comes back to God, God assures him, I haven't forgotten my promise, even if you have. And that's what God will do for you and me when we come back to him and commit to walking with him. He will remind us of his promises and that all the promises in this book are ours, are ours to lay hold of and reassure us and remain committed to us. The Bible says if we are faithless, God will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. Even if we forget, he never forgets. When we leave, he longs for us to come back to him and so that he can bless us and he reassures us of his love and his desire for us. We still have a room in his house and he wants to bless us even as he did Jacob. Just come home to him. Come back to Bethel, so to speak, and let, be, let yourself be reminded of the commitment that God cares for you. A couple went to Haiti to bring a child home that they had adopted. She was five years old. Her parents had been killed in a, a tragic car accident, and they left her without a family. But as she walked across the tarmac to board the plane, the tiny orphan reached up 
and slipped her hands into the hands of her new parents whom she had just met. They described it as her birth moment, when in that physical act of grasping their hands, she expressed an innocent, fearless trust in their care. That evening back home in Arizona, they sat down to their first supper together with their new daughter. There was a platter of, of pork chops and a bowl of mashed potatoes on the table. After the first serving, their, their two teenage boys kept refilling their plates. Soon the pork chops had disappeared. The mashed potatoes were gone, and, and Addie had never seen so much food on one table in her whole life. Her eyes were so big as she watched her new brothers, Thatcher and Graham, satisfy their ravenous teenage appetites, as teenage boys can do. Her new parents noticed that Addie had become very quiet and realized that something was wrong. Was it agitation? Was she bewildered? Was it insecurity? Then they guessed that it may be all the disappearing food. They suspected that because Addie had grown up hungry, when food was gone from the table, she might be thinking, it may be a few days before there's food again. Food again. They had guessed right. Her new mom took Addie's hand and led her to the bread drawer and pulled it out, where she showed her that there were three loaves of bread. She took her to the refrigerator, opened the door, and showed her the bottles of milk and orange juice and fresh vegetables and jars of jelly and jam, a carton of eggs, a package of bacon. Took her to the pantry with its bins of potatoes and onions and squash and shells of canned goods, tomatoes, peaches, pickles. She opened the freezer and showed Addie that there were several chickens, a few packages of fish, and two cartons of ice cream. All the time she was reassuring Addie that there was lots of food in the house, that no matter how much Thatcher and Graham ate and how fast they ate it, there was always plenty more where that came from. She would never go hungry. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Return to the Lord. Let him remind you of his abundant provision for you. And when we return to God, he also provides a way forward for us to face life's sorrows. Gain the confidence to face the hard times as well as the good. Feel the strength that comes from his presence no matter what life throws your way. That's what God did for Jacob. Look at verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, this was, would have been his nurse growing up as a child, died and was buried under the oak beneath Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakoth, the oak of weeping. You see, coming back to God does not exempt us from sorrow. Jacob comes back home to Bethel and he faces the death of a very close family friend. Deborah was his mother's nurse. No doubt she helped raise him as well and care for him when he was a child. You see, faith does not make things easy. It makes them possible because we have someone to lean on who was always faithful. But it is not a sorrow without assurance and a bright hope for the future. Skip down to verse 16. We see Jacob's faith even in the face of his own wife's death. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ethrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was giving, uh, and as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben Oni, son of my sorrow. But his father named him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of my strength. 
Even in the midst of sorrow, Jacob found strength to rest in God's promise for a glorious future. Death is not the end of the story for the believer. It is only the beginning of all that God has promised us. Genesis 35, 19-20, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. It's a pillar of hope. Bethlehem is the place where our Lord will enter this world as a tiny baby in a manger. His mother will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Worship team, you can make your way back up. Genesis 35, 21 to 29. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. We don't have time to address that. It comes up later on in the book, and perhaps we'll deal with it then when Jacob is blessing his sons, and we can talk about all of what that meant. It's more complicated than you think. Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulah. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came home to his father, Isaac and Mamre, near Kilra Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Jacob buried three people after he came home to God. Deborah, a close friend, his own wife, and his father Isaac. They say bad news comes in threes. Coming back to God did not exempt him from sorrow, but it did give him faith to face what was coming his way. It was a way forward. I saw this meme, I guess you call it a meme, and I thought it fit the chapter. It's from Toby Mac. Toby Mac is a Christian artist, and he lost his son due to a drug overdose in 2019. And it says, I asked God, why are you taking me through troubled waters? And he replied, because your enemies can't swim. Because your enemies can't swim. But I got you. I got you. Knowing El Bethel, the God of the house of God, gives us a way back and a way forward, and a way home. If you don't know what that way home is, it comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, from knowing him. He's the promise. He's the fulfillment of all of what was promised to Abraham long ago. And it's simply, to get in on that, it's simply a matter of saying, Lord, I'm missing something in my life. I need that. I know I've messed up. I've sinned. I've missed the mark. Come into my life. I accept you as Lord and Savior. Come into my life. Make me part of the family, and you will be. Confess him as Lord. Acknowledge who he is, and you will be saved. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you, not against you. Have a good day in Jesus. We're going to end with a song.